Hello, hello. This is Dr. Jason Lee. This is my special podcast with guest uh, Douglas Mack. Now, I'll let him introduce himself. Today, while I was on Twitter, we sparked a lively uh, discussion about food introduction guidelines. And I started the tweet with, uh, I just want to remind everyone, before the LEAP study results were, there was ample evidence of early introduction. That's right. The real news story should be about guidelines and why they're taking so slowly. And uh, I thought maybe there could have been more expediency to changing guidelines. So, uh, Doug, why don't you uh, tell us about yourself? You seem to be becoming like a TV star these days. You're on every <laughs> single uh, food allergy uh, broadcast. Oh, thanks, Jason. Yeah, it was a great discussion we had today. I think, um, you know, when we're talking about food introduction, um, what we know certainly from a from a peanut perspective is that earlier is better. And, and I think one of the challenges that we've we've had as a, as a as a as a specialty is that we have made guidelines in the past that unfortunately weren't evidence-based and that has led to a delay in introduction of foods. Um, we now have no more recent guidelines coming out of the states that have also suggested that we start screening these kids for um, peanut allergy early on. Um, and the biggest problem that, that we're seeing with this is that this this unnecessary screening, which unfortunately is not evidence-based, yeah, is going to lead to a lot of these kids that really should have this kind of this peanut early introduced without any screening, just get it into them, you know, five, six months of age. Uh, they're waiting to see an allergist, you know, and they're getting, they're getting tested and they, they don't need to be. Um, and I think that's one of the challenges that we're having is that now our guidelines are doing the exact same thing that they did in the past and they didn't really give us, unfortunately, um, good outcomes. And we, and we may see the same thing coming up uh, this time around. So, and I th- so I think that's one of the challenges that we were having today on Twitter. You know, I, I think um, just discussing this openly and saying, you know, what is the evidence? Um, are we actually doing harm? It's something we always have to think about when we kind of, when we, when we look at these, these, uh, these interventions. Yeah, so um, just for people who are not aware, uh, before this huge learning early about peanut uh, study came out, um, there was the ample evidence I was referring to was like, I think it was the Isle of Wright or Isle, uh, Isle of Man. Uh, mm-hmm. Those studies, the comparison epidemiologic studies between countries of the same ethnicity, I think there were Jewish children studied in Israel versus the UK. Uh, and there were, you know, different parts of the world, uh, like in East Asia, where, you mm-hmm. know, peanut is introduced very early on. Um, so this was the kind of evidence that was presented at pro-con debates. I remember mm-hmm. watching as a fellow. Uh, so I always felt, in full disclosure here, I'm definitely an early introduction mm-hmm. proponent. So I was really, I felt vindicated when leap results came out at the Quad AI. Uh, but yeah, it, this is the evidence, and I think leap just kind of solidified it for most. Would you agree with that, Doug? Yeah, I think so too. And I think, you know, it's amazing when I, when I talk about this um, to, to families and even to other doctors, LEAP showed an 85% reduction in the, the development of peanut allergy simply by doing the exact opposite of what the guidelines suggested in the first place, which was weight, you know, yeah. I mean, and, and, and that's where we have to have some humility here, right? You know, we have to be able to look at our guidelines and say, are we making the right decision? Are we, are we covering our butts or are we doing what's best for the patient? Um, and, and in this scenario, we were covering our butts by saying delay. Um, mm-hmm. And, 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 what's best for the patients is exactly what you described what's happening in other parts of the world, like Asia, Africa, um, Israel, where kids are given this food very, very early and they're doing a far better job at preventing 
um, allergy than we are. Now, granted, the rates, you know, inherently aren't as high. We don't see the same rates of eczema. We don't see the same rates of other types of allergies. But at the same time, even amongst those populations, they are showing um, much lower rates of overall food allergy in general. And their eat and their introduction practices are very different from what we're doing here. You know, yeah. and I think it's one of the big problems. I think one of the interesting things for me at, uh, of the LEAP study was that if you were in the AVOID group, your uh, likelihood and your IgE actually increased That's to correct. the very food that you were avoiding. So uh, it's almost like you're like missing out on the tolerization mechanism that our bodies or sort of our mouths are specially designed to do. Um, you, you know, there's some evidence that the mouth is layered and structured to try to tolerize you to different things, mm -hmm. particularly in uh, early onset of development. So it was quite interesting. So yeah. some of the tweets here are, are very interesting. Uh, Lanny Rosenwasser, who is mm. the past president of our American Academy of uh, Allergy, Asthma and Immunology, and the past president of the World Allergy Organization, uh, jumped in right away, kind of early on in the conversation. And uh, he, you know, I think he was originally saying that the guidelines came out pretty quick. We tried to do the mm -hmm. uh, publication within a few months, which I agree with. They, I think sure. they did jump on it. Um, I was originally referring to the Canadian Pediatric Society, which just recently right. came out and uh, corrected the previous misconceptions. Mm -hmm. um, but then the, the conversation kind of morphed into uh, some of the, the numbers he was uh, referring to about how, um, you know, from a risk point of view, he felt it was... Uh, you know, almost too risky to have mm. people do challenges at home. That's correct. Um, yeah. So, and then, you know, there are a couple of other people uh, weighed in here, Brian Shore, uh, who had, I think, largely the same opinion as you. That's and right. then at the very end, uh, um, that famous uh, um, Matt Bell, Karina. he also, and yeah, Karina also chimed in as well. So, yeah, you know, um, take me through some of the conversation we had here yeah. uh, in terms of how that played out. Well, I think what you saw there was that, you know, Lanny had, has, is siding with the NIA guidelines. That's the national, um, um, the agency in the States um, that have set up guidelines. Um, and, and what they've, they've done is they've this early onset screening um, for some of the, uh, the more higher risk children. So, for example, severe eczema or a history preceding of egg allergy. Um, and, and he kind of walked through and felt that the risk of early introduction is simply just too high. And then some of the figures that he quoted were, were extrapolated from older data saying that two thirds of these kids would have reactions and, and there's a mortality rate of one in 2,500. And, you know, we took issue with some of those, um, those um, figures. I mean, the first, one, the mortality rate of one in 2,500 um, on early introduction, you know, the reality is, uh, Jason, there actually has never been um, a fatality for peanut introduction uh, ever. And I'm not, not that we want them to be. I mean, that's never, never our goal. I mean, we, know we don't want that. But, but the course, risk yeah. of early introduction is very, very low. Children do this all the time in all countries around the world without any in, any intervention without and yes some kids react but it is a very very safe procedure you know and this is and and i think what 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 it highlighted and I, what i think that highlights is that yes children can have very very severe reactions but the amazing thing about the infant and you know we're taught this in medical school children and infants are not just little adults and, and i think mm -hmm. there is a big difference between the reactions that we see in infants and children compared to 
um, reactions that we see in adults in late teens. Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. you know, we 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 rarely see fatalities in younger, very very young children, but we see them quite commonly. And even what we know from the oral challenge data is that oral challenges the severity seems to get worse as you get older. You know, in general, with younger infants, we see hives, um, some vomiting, etc. But we don't typically see respiratory or cardiovascular compromise until they start to get a bit older. Now, that can happen as early as two or three or four, or even in an infant, but it's much less common in infants than it is in older children. And, and, and so, you know, I think that the a lot of the concern is fueled by statements that say two-thirds of these kids will have reactions. And the reality, that's just simply not the case. In fact, Australian data, which was is awesome. I love the Australians. They're so pragmatic when it comes to looking at this stuff. And they talk about the rates of, of anaphylaxis in an oral challenge to peanut um, and other foods in infants. You know, it's only, it's, it's about one to 2%. And that, that's a vast difference from what is being quoted, um, you know, in, by Dr. Rosen, um, Rosenwasser, and, and much respect to him, but I, but I would have to say that the figures that he's using are unfortunately very, very specific to the to the to the situation that he's kind of quoting, and, and they're not generalizable to the population that we're talking about. So, you know, I certainly took issue with that. Um, Brian Shore took issue with that, and I think Brian had a great point. I mean, where does this end? <laughs> you know, mm, yeah. if we're going to screen for peanut, what do we do for sesame, and what do we do for tree nuts, and what do we do for for eggs and 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 other foods. I mean, where do you draw the you line? The reality, where, yeah. where do you draw the line? Yeah, and, you know, and I think that we're going to be going right back to the days where we said no. You know, we, we've been trying to say no panel testing, but this mm-hmm. precedent sets this up in such a way that but we're going to have, have a hard test. time. We're going to have to test. You know, yeah. and I think unfortunately this is what we see. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I don't necessarily think we. I think we we can all. We all want to reduce risk. And I think in an ideal world, if that child was able to see an allergist at six months and, and they were able to be tested and then immediately given an oral challenge to see if they're actually allergic, that would be amazing. That would be, that would be very, very safe. But it's not practical. It's not cost effective. And in fact, Matt Greenhot out of Colorado has some really, really pristine data looking at the economics of this and shows that this that this screening approach is actually not economically or practically feasible. And I think that that's, you know, when we take a close look at this, mm. my feeling is that once the evidence is out there, we're going to look back on this and say, you know what, guys? we probably shouldn't be screening these kids and you know and that's what that those are the those are the um, conclusions of most other countries you know the the u.s have their guidelines yeah and they've been supported by another number of a number of of um organizations but um, many other societies have come to the same the same conclusion where screening is just not necessary Absolutely. So you and I, when we, you know, when I was part of the CSACI sure. uh, committee, or uh, I don't know what you would call it, executive, looking yeah. at the, into this, uh, you know, we chimed in uh, some of the Canadian concerns, echoing some of the comments you had made, and That's sort right. of my take on the NIAID guidelines. It ended up kind of mirroring a lot of uh, some of the the leap trial uh, uh, very closely, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know, um, maybe. Uh, some of the real life considerations and and practicalities, uh, you know, were not as heavily favored. I, I think they mentioned it a little bit, uh, but you know, it, you're right. It is impractical to screen right. every uh, infant with uh, atopic dermatitis, um, and uh, it, you know, certainly 
Uh, I don't know what your wait list is like, but I, I do an active <laughs> exactly. wait list management, and it's very hard to see we people at, at that four to six month window. Um, so it's interesting. And one of the comments I made was that, uh, you know, they didn't really define what severe eczema or that's a very good point term was like you know um allergists are probably not the best i had only in the last two years learned how to score using easy and the iga and uh you know had to kind of relearn body surface area to right do all these scorings but it's not something that comes intuitively to most allergists on what is severe atopic derm. So that was kind of a, 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 a judgment call that maybe people don't have experience in. 100%. Um, yeah, so... You know, and what's interesting about that also, Jason, I'll say one more thing about that, is that the leap, and I think that this is the one thing, this, this is the one area that's, I think, very difficult for, for people to grasp, and, and it's hard to explain, so I'll do my best. But leap, if you think about leap, okay, the intervention that LEAP used was not whether or not screening is useful. The intervention was the early introduction. Correct, yeah. The, the screening they used were to simply, simply pick a high-risk um, population that would show the desired effect because they needed, a, they needed to show that this intervention was going to have an effect in a population where they knew that the, the, the prob probability was high. They couldn't pick a group that didn't have a high probability or else they wouldn't have the power to show that this intervention, which was early introduction, worked. Unfortunately, the guidelines have made a bit of a mistake and they said they think they have interpreted that screening um, um, inclusion criteria as the intervention. It's not the intervention. And I mm -hmm. think that that is what's missed. The intervention was not whether to screen, the intervention yeah, that's a clinical was, trial entry exclusion, exactly. inclusion, yeah. And, and that's why it should never have been even part of the NI guidelines to begin with, because it was an inclusion criteria and not the intervention. And that's the biggest problem, I think. Yeah, I totally agree as well. But uh, as you know, Doug, in, in other therapeutic areas that we practice in, and, and asthma, for example, unfortunately, the original study, phase two or phase three, study inclusion exclusion criteria uh, makes it as part of the actual indication. So, you know, I, I can think of the first patient that I had to huh. bite the bullet who had uh, EGPA or Turk Strauss. I had to just give them omalizumab. Uh, it's a sure. medicine we use that's uh, supposed to be contraindicated in asthma. But sometimes, you know, the science just falls behind or the indication falls behind the uh, evolving science. Um, hmm. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. That, you know, this I'm curious to see where we end up when, uh, you know, we're uh, Lanny's uh, <laughs> age. You know, <laughs> no, they yeah. got uh, Lanny. But, um, yeah, you know, it's... Um, it's definitely an evolving science. Do you feel that we're kind of in the stone ages of uh, food allergies? Like I sometimes, it, I sometimes wonder, you know, and I think, I think we're making progress, but you know, listen, I mean, it's how many years has it taken for us to get this far? And we're still, and we still can't agree on this, you know? And I think, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of growth. I mean, um, but for food allergy, you know, it, it, it's just starting, you know, I, we've had a, a ton of stuff. Asthma has had a great heyday. You've, you've been, you've been loving the biologics and I, and I, and I love to see this being used more routinely in food allergy. We're just not getting those indications, although they're, they're going to, hopefully they're becoming. Um, so you've had a heyday with this. You've had a heyday with, you know, um, with many different puffers. You've, you've got, you know, even, you know, um, great medications now, um, Dupixent for your eczema. So, like, look at you're 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 loving this. From your perspective, this is huge. Um, from a food perspective, I mean, there are obviously some things coming, and whether we kind of bundle those with the biologics, or we kind of just 
go on our own with things like oral immunotherapy or epicutaneous immunotherapy, etc. I mean, you know, this is, I, I think from our perspective, getting much more exciting. You know, I'd love, I love preventing it. You know, I tell, I tell mm. families who come to see us for immunotherapy, let's, you know, let's get the other foods introduced. It's easier to prevent the allergy than it is to treat it. But once that food allergy is established, we don't have a ton of options. I mean, and mm. listen, I, you, you know, as well as I do, you know, for, for years, it was like diagnose and adios, right? You know, here's your EpiPen and I'm going to see you in three years or two years. And, 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 you know, and, and that is changing, but it's, it's, moving along unfortunately rather slowly and it's certainly in, in Canada it is anyways yeah, yeah it certainly is as a doctor you know you always want to offer some kind of intervention that will that's right change the outcome but uh, you know it, it has definitely been frustrating so what, one of the uh, things that's you know made you really stand out Doug and you know I respect and really admire your pioneering work on food allergies mm -hmm. is the oral desensitization that you've yep. been uh, really doing and you've been kind of uh, spearheading this in Canada. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the oral desensitization and like what, what it involves and, yeah. uh, and what the principles are? You know, listen, it's, it's a, I really appreciate it, Jason. Um, you know, oral immunotherapy is something that actually has been done. It seems like it's a kind of a more recent thing, but to some degree it's been done. We're first reported over 100 years ago with egg. And, and it's been done in smaller amounts kind of throughout. The Europeans have been doing this now for a very long time, um, for a number of decades, um, and are actually the first, you know, um, set of countries that have, you know, really good guidelines on this. But Basically, what it is, is identifying properly with, with accurate diagnosis what the food allergy is, you know, and, and then and then deciding to give small amounts of that food in order to build tolerance. It's very, very similar to subcutaneous immunotherapy for things like dog or cat or sublingual immunotherapy. Um, but you're orally giving a very, very small amount of the food that that patient is allergic to. Um, and Typically, that takes anywhere from six to nine to 12 months or so for these kids to kind of gradually, every few weeks, you start with a very small dose. We start at around one one thousandth of a peanut, but some people start a little bit higher, but that's where kind of where we feel comfortable. Um, and then every couple of weeks, they, the patients come into our clinic, they're assessed, and we and we give them a bit more. Um, and what, you know, we've been doing this now for over five years, and and. It, and it's been, we've seen a, a massive shift in, in the knowledge base. As I said, now we have international guidelines out of Europe um, giving peanut um, immunotherapy and as well as milk and egg immunotherapy, you know, a grade 1A recommendation to increase tolerance, which is which is really dramatic. I mean, that, that's a, for those of you guys who don't know, I mean, that, that's a huge recommendation. Yeah, that's the strongest um, possible recommendation. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, we have it now. We have a phase three trial now, Jason. I mean, I think this is published in the New England Journal of Medicine, you know, looking at the use of peanut immunotherapy um, to raise the threshold um, uh, of tolerability in these patients. Mm. And it was just published quite recently. Uh, you know, it's a lovely study. Um, and, but, uh, and what it does is basically confirm what we've been doing now for five years. And we were, like I said, we were doing this before there was ever a phase three trial. And I think that that's all we, was, it was a criticism. I mean, I think for years, you know, people didn't want to touch this because it was, you know, um, 
because we didn't have that phase three data. But now that we do, you know, let me tell you, it was a different feeling being at the at the meetings. You know, the last couple of years, it was kind of hands off. Don't do immunotherapy. It's too, we don't know enough about it. You know, as you as you remember, you know, in this last year, it, it was almost like a switch. And, and people are like, well, listen, let's get on this and, and get moving. And so we found ourselves, you know, we do 100 kids at a time right now. You know, it's, it's it, the demand is huge. And, and patients are really, you know, the majority are really doing very well with this. Are you referring to the A-Immune uh, study that was That's right, exactly. That's called the yeah, A-Immune yeah. study. And A-Immune is a company, and what they've done is they have used peanut flour, very, very similar to what we use. I mean, the first studies that were published were using a defatted peanut flour. So it's low in fat, um, uh, or essentially no fat, um, and and you just give you can measure it out quite nicely, um, and what Immune does is they've they've basically encapsulate capsule um, um, put the put the flour into pre measured capsules. The patients open that up and sprinkle it on food, and the every dose goes up a little bit more and a little bit more, and eventually they target about three hundred milligrams worth of peanut protein. And for those that you don't know, that's probably about one and a half ish to two peanuts depending on how big the peanut is some are smaller and 150 milligrams some are a bit bigger but if you if you estimate one and a half peanuts that would be pretty fair you know as a as an estimate so and what they showed in that in the new england journal article is after six months of doing this kind of one and a half peanuts on a daily basis they brought these patients back and what they showed was that about 95 percent of these kids could tolerate uh, now two and a half peanuts so yeah that was pretty good and then about um, 85% of these kids could tolerate five and a half peanuts, which is, you know, that's actually very good after only being on this for six months. But a further 63% could actually tolerate 10 and a half peanuts in an oral challenge. I mean, obviously, so this was artificial, um, you know, it was an oral challenge, but still, that's a dramatic improvement and a dramatic increase after being only on one and a half peanuts for six months to all of a sudden be able to eat 10 and a half peanuts with little to no symptoms whatsoever. You know, and, and I think that that's what is really, really exciting here uh, and where families can can go to a restaurant or they can, you know, they can get food out and they can travel and they can yeah. do things and live in life where they're not constantly mm -hmm. worried. Uh, are they going to have my that child anxiety? Right. Yeah. Having and, that anxiety and, and, and because their tolerance is so much higher, right? And I think that this is where, so from a quality of life perspective, this is massive for most of our families, you know? And I think that that's why, you know, the A-immune trial, I think is so important because we do have a phase three trial now. Um, and we're gonna see, I think a lot more people starting to pick up doing this because now that we have this really, really nice data. And it was, you know, so we show that we show, when we, we talk, we counsel families, you know, we, we talk to them about this trial. We talked to them about some of the guidelines um, we also talk about a lot of the challenges. I mean, I think one of the things is important to, for people to know when you talk about this immunotherapy, you know, I don't think this is a cure, you know, and I think that that's really one of the challenges that we, you know, that we face. And I think, um, I love to be able to say this is a cure. Uh, do I think this is a very good treatment a hundred percent, but do I think this is a cure? You know, I think that's where I think time will tell, but I'm not convinced that that's going to be the case. Yeah. You know, we have, we have seen this work very, very well. I will say in the younger age group, you know, the younger age group seems to be the most um, just like with LEAP, you know, you, you, you give early intervention with, with LEAP to prevent it, but the same thing applies for a treatment. You know, giving this early to these kids, um, it seems to work a bit better. It seems to be safer. It seems to be better tolerated. But there is a trial currently going on 
called the IMPACT trial. And what Mm -hmm. that trial is looking at is doing immunotherapy in the younger age group for about uh, two and a half half years, stopping the the immunotherapy. Imagine that, stopping, doing like committing to this for two and a half years and then stopping it for six months. You know, these families are incredible if they're doing this. And then then seeing what happens. Yeah, seeing if it comes back. It's very fascinating. That that would be a cure, right? And I think that that's where we we, we still don't have that data yet, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, one of the uh, big splashes in the past was uh, this epicutaneous uh, yeah. desensitization, which means basically wearing kind of something similar to a nicotine patch that releases a little bit of uh, peanut protein. Uh, mm-hmm. Any thoughts on uh, if you think that's going to be a breakthrough for tolerization or if, it, if it's going to be one of these things that no one's going to actually want to do? Yeah, great question. I think practic- practically, I think it's challenging because I think in the end, you know, are, do these pa- do these patients wear a patch for the next, you know, three, five, ten years? I don't think we know the answer to that. Obviously, mm-hmm. um, is the, and is it you know the the actual trials? Yes, they absolutely improve tolerance in a lot of these a lot of these kids. But the biggest problem is it didn't seem to really work in patients over the age of 11, right? So the 12-year-olds and up group didn't really work. So once again, your younger age group is better. Um, so, and, and unfortunately, um, the difference from placebo, it was there, but it wasn't as big as the FDA had hoped for mm-hmm. or pre-specified. You know, they, they, had, sorry, they had pre-specified for the FDA. And so, in fact, unfortunately, um, DBV, the company, has actually withdrawn their sus- submission uh, of it from the FDA just, in, in fact, just a few weeks back. And that's obviously a big problem that doesn't bode well for the for the for the technology. Um, and unfortunately, we I don't know when we're going to see this ever available mm-hmm. in Canada. So I think I, they I are resubmitting, you know, from what I understand. Yeah, uh, I think you're right. Submit, yeah. But it's a challenge, isn't it? I mean, I think that you know when you see this, you know, something submitted and and then withdrawn and then um, and the and it, and the 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 effect was not as big as they'd really hoped. Um, it, it, it's it's concerning, but at the same time, it was very safe. I mean, that was the one thing that That's I really, really like about it. You know, the safety of this would be great. You know, I, I almost envision a, a process where potentially, if kids are might be hard to do, they may have you know they might be potentially trickier. Maybe start with something like the patch and then move them on to something like you know oral immunotherapy. Because once again, in the end, the practicalities of this are: are these kids going to wear this patch for the next? 20 years, you know, and I think that that's, we don't know how to make that transition. And I don't think that unless this is a cure, that's what they're basically faced with doing. And I think, so we haven't quite figured out that integration yet, but it's promising. I still think right now, unfortunately, oral immunotherapy is, is, is the, is the, is the, is the way to go. You know, I think that 20 years down the road, we'll might be doing something a little bit differently. Um, I hope so. You know, I think that, you know, I, you know, if we get stagnated on just one approach, I think that's going to be a challenge. But, you know, I think 20 years down the road, we'll ho- hopefully have something different, maybe a bit better, maybe a bit safer. But right now, I think it's a really good option for many of our families, you know. Uh, and, yeah, and it's sure. Absolutely. Uh, one of the uh, groups uh, in the U.S., the Mount Sinai group, has done a lot of the pioneering work on using anti-IgE. So for right. those that don't know, it's a medication called uh, Zolaer or omalizumab that I use for asthma and urticaria. Yeah. Uh, it can be used for a number of other things uh, off-label, but one of the things that's now on-label, at least according mm-hmm. to the FDA in the U.S., is that you can use it to mitigate the risk of food allergic reactions. Yeah. And so that group has done a lot of work in you know, using, utilizing this drug to kind of more rapidly desensitize patients Correct. orally uh, do you think that's an option if costs were not a barrier? 
Great. It's such a good question. I mean, you think about that. It's a unique indication, isn't it, Jason? Because what you're looking at is, you know, somebody wants to go for a trip for the summertime for a few weeks. Oh, just, you know, throw them on, throw them on omelizumab for a you know, couple weeks beforehand and before they leave for their trip. And then, you know, they'll hopefully have some protection while they're away. So, that, I mean, that, that's kind of where we might see this actually practically used without doing, you know, desensitization. That, that's a great, it's a, it's a very neat, neat concept. Um, um, but the, we haven't had to use this for immunotherapy. When I first started doing immunotherapy, I thought we would have to use this for so many of our patients mm. um, to kind of reduce the risk of reaction. Because, you know, unfortunately, during immunotherapy, there are reactions. I mean, kids get, um, you know, uh, mild reactions with mouth issues, lip swelling, you know, vomiting, you know, respiratory symptoms, sometimes hypotension on occasion, but, you know, thankfully quite rarely. Uh, and so, something like omelizumab had the potential to to or has the potential to reduce those side effects and like i said we haven't had to use it yet um i think we would have been much more likely to use it if we actually were able to get coverage for it because as you know it, it's relatively expensive you know and i think that that's one of the challenges that we have is that um you know, adding that cost to the whole procedure um, is, is it makes it even more expensive than it already is. And I think that that's one of the challenges. But I do think it has a ton of potential. I would love to see kind of, and we do have some trials. You you know this yourself. I mean, there are some um, phase two trials with this, and and they're and and they absolutely reduce um, uh, the the side effects, and they actually improve the tolerability of this, and then improve the success rate with using Zolaire in addition to oral immunotherapy um it's just i think going to become it's just not yet there now if the if the indications change jason that's going to be a big game changer as well so if we get that agent if we get that sort of that, that indication for treatment of food allergy in canada like i said I, that may change our perspective on how to do this because it certainly would make things much quicker and, and i think that that's another you know pro of doing this yeah um you know you know they, they can you can do this much quicker and i think that that's you know, so the, using something like zolaire and anti-ige which basically mops up that allergic antibody and and does things to the mast cell is just a lovely you know a lovely approach and i, and I think hopefully we'll see that but i'm also thinking you know something like dupixent or something like this the dupilumab um this also might be a, a useful tool to kind of reduce the inflammatory process Absolutely. because one of the things that we see is 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 you know eoe which is eosinophilic esophagitis and that's and that's where you get this kind of ongoing inflammation in the esophagus so something like that i wonder whether it might be useful you know i, I think there are certainly some trials that are going actually happening currently uh, with depixent and a immune and and potentially we're going to see that um as well so I, I do think it's an exciting time. I think that we're going to see a lot of, you know, if we have some very forward-thinking approaches where you are now combining not just oral immunotherapy, um, which may be a dinosaur in 20 years, but then also using these biologics in conjunction with that to, to really um, make it safer, um, more effective. But once again, your biggest issue right now is cost and access to the, the biologics, yeah, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's one thing that comes up repeatedly in our in conversation today is that it seems like the younger you are, the more malleable the immune system is. 100%. And, you know, for folks at home who don't know this, uh, your thymus is kind of like the university uh, organ. Mm. It's where your immune cells go to train and recognize self from non-self, foreign, and whatever. Um, it's biggest when you're younger, and it kind of gets mm. smaller and smaller every year, unfortunately. Um, so, you know, it's kind of like you can teach a young kid or young dog a lot of new tricks, <laughs> but an old dog, you can't. Um, right. Yeah, and the other thing that was, you know, a private, more of a private thought of mine, but, mm. uh, you know, we, we all do know that anaphylactic reactions 
tend to be less severe in uh, infants. That's um, and, you know, one of the biggest risk factors for um, anaphylactic reaction is asthma. And I do right. wonder if, you know, it's because children have not yet developed asthma uh, mm. in that time period. But, you know, a personal thought, and if this is one of the many mechanisms that omalizumab may have to mitigate some of that risk. It, it would be amazing, wouldn't it? I mean, I think that that's where, you know, we do actually a lot of our kids that we do immunotherapy on um, for oral immunotherapy are, are asthmatics. And, and I think, you know, more than 50%. Um, and we have to keep their asthma under perfect control. You know, unfortunately, Jason, it's the, it's the most common risk factor, as you know, not only for food allergy, um, severe reactions outside of immunotherapy, but it's certainly during immunotherapy, some of the most significant reported um, immunotherapy reactions have been all in asthmatics. And I think that that's, you know, really very consistent. So something like Zolair that would then, you know, um, take care of both the asthma as well, or at least the allergic asthma, um, and and um, and the food allergy at the same time is, is lovely. It's just a matter of whether we can do it, you know, yeah. practically. What well, one last question, Doug? Uh, yeah, yeah please. But we planned on ten minutes, but this is like half an uh, it's hour. It's been a great conversation. Awesome I love it because I think this is going to be great for any listener out there. Um, do you think we'll be able to cure uh, food allergies in the next five to ten years? You know, I, I think five to 10 years would be, I think, I think it's going to be pushing it because I think, but in, in my lifetime, in my career, I think we're going to be able to. And I think that right now we talk about a, re, a state of remission, you know, and I think that that's, that's, I think where we are, you know, I, I would love to, see, you know, I, I think that probably the most promise is not only just by giving the food like in immunotherapy, but also once again, using a biologic to change that immune response at the fundamentally, you know, I think that, that I, I think is going to be a great approach, but we also are seeing, you know, um, other other therapies like um, nanoparticles, et cetera, this kind of thing where you're using adjuvants, vaccines, basically, um, uh, early on um, to, to, to prevent uh, or treat, you know, these kind of mild, mild allergies early, early on. And I think that that's something that I think we're going to see a lot more. So do I think it's going to be ready in five to 10 years? Probably not. But in my career, I'm really hopeful, you know, and I think in, in my patients' lives, you know, the, you know, the ones that I'm seeing, at, at, you know, at a year of age, listen, I'm 40, I'm 40, I'm in my 40s anyways, my vision's going, I can tell you that much. But, um, but you know, in my ki- my patients' career uh, or lives, I think we're going to see that these kids will be cured. And I think that that's one of the hopes that we do give them anyways, even if we're not curing them, we are treating them with immunotherapy. But I think in their career, we're going to see it, or in their lifetime, we're going to see it. Uh, um, uh, Akira, I hope so. Yeah, I think I, I would totally agree with that. I, I'm a bit of an eternal optimist. I'm thinking maybe yeah. <laughs> 10 years, but I'm cognizant of the fact that clinical trials take, you know, three to That's five the years issue. to go through all the phases, and then you've got the approval process. That's it's, the issue. Uh, you know, quite, uh, quite lengthy. And but, don't forget, uh, listen, yeah. I mean, like I said, you know, you know, immunotherapy was first it had published in a big way 10 years ago at the Quadi. I remember being there in Washington and, and, and Stacey Jones presented it. And I remember thinking, wow, this is my future, you know, and I was just finishing my, my fellowship training. Um, and I think, wow, this is where we're going. Um, and it's, and look at where, you know, it's taken me 10 years to really get this moving off the ground, you know, uh, you know, and to really get to a point where we, we now are doing this almost, almost, in, almost solely as, you know, we're almost mm-hmm. only doing food allergy now and almost only doing oral immunotherapy, but that's been 10 years and the rest of Canada is just catching up with this, you know, and I think that that's, and so I, I think 10 years might be, might be pushing it, but listen, we can always be hopeful. All right. Thank you very much, Doug. Uh, Have a good night. Hey, thanks, Jason, for asking. Uh, Thanks for talking.